Chapter Ten of the Magnificent Abersons. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Magnificent Ambersons by Booth Tarkington. Chapter Ten. A few days after George's return to the university, it became evident that not quite everybody had gazed with complete benevolence upon the various young collegians at their holiday sports. The Sunday edition of the principal morning paper even expressed some bitterness under the heading, Gilded Youths of the Fin de Siècle. This was considered the knowing phrase of the time, especially for Sunday supplements, and there is no doubt that from certain references in this bit of writing, some people drew the conclusion that Mr. George Amberson Minifer had not yet got his comeuppance, a postponement still irritating. Undeniably, Fanny Minifer was one of the people who drew this conclusion, for she cut the article out, and enclosed it in a letter to her nephew, having written on the border of the clipping, "'I wonder whom it can mean.' George read part of it. "'We debate sometimes what is to be the future of this nation when we think that in a few years public affairs may be in the hands of the fin de siècle gilded youths we see about us during the Christmas holidays.' Such foppery, such luxury, such insolence, was surely never practised by the scented, overbearing patricians of the Palatine, even in Rome's most decadent epoch. In all the wild orgy of wastefulness and luxury with which the nineteenth century reaches its close, the gilded youth has been surely the worst symptom. With his airs of young milord, his fast horses, his gold and silver cigarette-cases, his clothes from a New York tailor, his recklessness of money showered upon him by indulgent mothers or doting grandfathers, he respects nothing and nobody. He is blasé, if you please. Watch him at a social function, how condescendingly he deigns to select a partner for the popular waltz, or two-step, how carelessly he shoulders older people out of his way, with what a blank stare he returns the salutation of some old acquaintance whom he may choose in his royal whim to forget. The unpleasant part of all this is that the young women he so condescendingly selects as partners for the dance greet him with seeming rapture, though in their hearts they must feel humiliated by his languid hauteur, and many older people beam upon him almost fawningly if he unbends so far as to throw them a careless, disdainful word. One wonders what has come over the new generation. Of such as these the Republic was not made. Let us pray that the future of our country is not in the hands of these fantasiecle gilded youths, but rather in the calloused palms of young men yet unknown, labouring upon the farms of the land. When we compare the young manhood of Abraham Lincoln with the specimens we are now producing, we see too well that it bodes ill for the twentieth century. George yawned, and tossed the clipping into his waste-basket, wondering why his aunt thought such dull nonsense worth the sending. As for her insinuation, penciled upon the border, he supposed she meant to joke, a supposition which neither surprised him nor altered his lifelong opinion of her wit. He read her letter with more interest. The dinner your mother gave for the Morgans was a lovely affair. It was last Monday evening, just ten days after you left, 
It was peculiarly appropriate that your mother should give this dinner, because her brother George, your uncle, was Mr. Morgan's most intimate friend, before he left here a number of years ago, and it was a pleasant occasion for the formal announcement of some news which you heard from Lucy Morgan before you returned to college. At least she told me she had told you the night before you left that her father had decided to return here to live. It was appropriate that your mother, herself an old friend, should assemble a representative selection of Mr. Morgan's old friends around him at such a time. He was in great spirits and most entertaining. As your time was so charmingly taken up during your visit home with a younger member of his family, you probably overlooked opportunities of hearing him talk, and do not know what an interesting man he can be. He will soon begin to build his factory here for the manufacture of automobiles, which he says is a term he prefers to horseless carriages. Your Uncle George told me he would like to invest in this factory, as George thinks there is a future for automobiles, perhaps not for general use, but as an interesting novelty, which people with sufficient means would like to own for their amusement and the sake of variety. However, he said Mr. Morgan laughingly declined his offer, as Mr. M. was fully able to finance this venture, though not starting in a very large way. Your uncle said other people are manufacturing automobiles in different parts of the country with success. Your father is not well, though he is not actually ill, and the doctor tells him he ought not to be so much at his office, as the long years of application indoors with no exercise are beginning to affect him unfavorably. But I believe your father would die if he had to give up his work, which is all that has ever interested him outside of his family. I never could understand it. Mr. Morgan took your mother and me with Lucy to see Modjeska in Twelfth Night, yesterday evening, and Lucy said she thought the Duke looked rather like you, only much more democratic in his manner. I suppose you will think I have written a great deal about the Morgans in this letter, but thought you would be interested because of your interest in a younger member of his family. Hoping that you are finding college still as attractive as ever, affectionately, and Fanny. George read one sentence in this letter several times, then he dropped the missive in his waste-basket to join the clipping, and strolled down the corridor of his dormitory to borrow a copy of Twelfth Night. Having secured one, he returned to his study and refreshed his memory of the play, but received no enlightenment that enabled him to comprehend Lucy's strange remark. However, he found himself impelled in the direction of correspondence, and presently wrote a letter, not a reply to his Aunt Fanny. "'Dear Lucy, no doubt you will be surprised at hearing from me so soon again, especially as this makes two in answer to the one received from you since getting back to the old place. I hear you have been making comments about me at the theatre, that some actor was more democratic in his manners than I am, which I do not understand.' You know my theory of life, because I explained it to you on our first drive together, when I told you I would not talk to everybody about things I feel, like the way I spoke to you of my theory of life. I believe those who are able should have a true theory of life, and I developed my theory of life long, long ago. Well, here I sit, smoking my faithful briar pipe, indulging in the fragrance of my tobacco as I look out on the campus from my many-paned window.' 
and things are different with me from the way they were way back in freshman year. I can see now how boyish in many ways I was then. I believe what has changed me as much as anything was my visit home at the time I met you. So I sit here with my faithful briar and dream the old dreams over, as it were, dreaming of the waltzes we waltzed together, and of that last night before we parted, and you told me the good news you were going to live there, and I would find my friend waiting for me when I get home next summer. I will be glad my friend will be waiting for me. I am not capable of friendship except for the very few, and, looking back over my life, I remember there were times when I doubted if I could feel a great friendship for anybody, especially girls. I do not take a great interest in many people, as you know, for I find most of them shallow. Here in the old place I do not believe in being hail-fellow well-met with every Tom, Dick, and Harry, just because he happens to be a classmate, any more than I do at home, where I have always been careful who I was seen with, largely on account of the family, but also because my disposition ever since my boyhood has been to encourage real intimacy from but the few. What are you reading now? I have finished both Henry Esmond and the Virginians. I like Thackeray because he is not trashy, and because he writes principally of nice people. My theory of literature is an author who does not indulge in trashiness, writes about people you could introduce into your own home. I agree with my Uncle Sidney, as I once heard him say he did not care to read a book or go to a play about people he would not care to meet at his own dinner-table. I believe we should live by certain standards and ideals, as you know from my telling you my theory of life. Well, a letter is no place for deep discussions, so I will not go into the subject. From several letters from my mother, and one from Aunt Fanny, I hear you are seeing a good deal of the family since I left. I hope sometimes you think of the member who is absent. I got a silver frame for your photograph in New York, and I keep it on my desk. It is the only girl's photograph I ever took the trouble to have framed, though, as I told you frankly, I have had any number of other girls' photographs, yet all were only passing fancies, and oftentimes I have questioned in years past if I was capable of much friendship towards the feminine sex, which I usually found shallow until our own friendship began. When I look at your photograph, I say to myself, At last, at last here is one that will not prove shallow. My faithful briar has gone out. I will have to rise and fill it, then once more in the fragrance of My Lady Nicotine, I will sit and dream the old dreams over, and think, too, of the true friend at home awaiting my return in June for the summer vacation. Friend, this is from your friend, G. A. M. George's anticipations were not disappointed. When he came home in June his friend was awaiting him. At least, she was so pleased to see him again that for a few minutes after that first encounter she was a little breathless, and a great deal glowing and quiet withal. Their sentimental friendship continued, though sometimes he was irritated by her making it less sentimental than he did, and sometimes by what he called her air of superiority. Her air was usually, in truth, that of a fond but amused older sister, and George did not believe such an attitude was warranted by her eight months of seniority. 
Lucy and her father were living at the Amberson Hotel, while Morgan got his small machine-shops built in a western outskirt of the town, and George grumbled about the shabbiness and the old-fashioned look of the hotel, though it was still the best in the place, of course. He remonstrated with his grandfather, declaring that the whole Amberson estate would be getting run down and out at heel if things weren't taken in hand pretty soon. He urged the general need of rebuilding, renovating, varnishing, and lawsuits. But the Major, declining to hear him out, interrupted querulously, saying that he had enough to bother him without any advice from George, and retired to his library, going so far as to lock the door audibly. Second childhood, George muttered, shaking his head, and he thought sadly that the Major had not long to live. However, this surmise depressed him for only a moment or so. Of course people couldn't be expected to live forever, and it would be a good thing to have someone in charge of the estate who wouldn't let it get to looking so rusty that Riffraff dared to make fun of it. For George had lately undergone the annoyance of calling upon the Morgans, in the rather stuffy red velours and gilt parlour of their apartment at the hotel, one evening when Mr. Frederick Kinney also was a caller, and Mr. Kinney had not been tactful. In fact, though he adopted a humorous tone of voice in expressing his sympathy for people who, through the city's poverty in hotels, were obliged to stay at the Amberson, Mr. Kinney's intention was interpreted by the other visitor as not at all humorous, but on the contrary, personal and offensive. George rose abruptly, his face the colour of wrath. "'Good night, Miss Morgan. Good night, Mr. Morgan.' he said. I shall take pleasure in calling at some other time when a more courteous sort of people may be present. "'Look here!' the hot-headed Fred burst out. "'Don't you try to make me out a bore, George Minifer. I wasn't hinting anything at you. I simply forgot all about your grandfather owning this old building. Don't you try to put me in the light of a boor. I won't—' But George walked out in the very course of this vehement protest— and it was necessarily left unfinished. Mr. Kinney remained only a few moments after George's departure, and as the door closed upon him, the distressed Lucy turned to her father. She was plaintively surprised to find him in a condition of immoderate laughter. <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't think I could hold out! <laughs> he gasped, and after choking until tears came to his eyes, felt blindly for the chair from which he had risen to wish Mr. Kinney an indistinct good-night. His hand found the arm of the chair, he collapsed feebly, and sat uttering incoherent sounds. Papa! It brings things back so, he managed to explain. This very Fred Kinney's father and young George's father, Wilbur Minifer, used to do just such things when they were at that age. And for that matter, so did George Amberson and I, and all the rest of us. And in spite of his exhaustion he began to imitate. Don't you try to put me in the light of a boar. I shall take pleasure in calling at some time when a more courteous sort of people— <laughs> He was unable to go on. There is a mirth for every age, and Lucy failed to comprehend her father's, but tolerated it a little ruefully. "'Papa, I think they were shocking. Weren't they awful?' 
just, just boys, he moaned, wiping his eyes. But Lucy could not smile at all. She was beginning to look indignant. I can forgive that poor Fred Kinney, she said. He's just blundering. But George! Oh, George behaved outrageously! It's a difficult age, her father observed, his calmness somewhat restored. Girls don't seem to have to pass through it quite as boys do. Or their savoir-faire is instinctive, or something. And he gave away to a return of his convulsion. She came and sat upon the arm of his chair. Papa, why should George behave like that? <laughs> He's sensitive. Rather. But why is he? He does anything he likes to, without any regard for what people think. Then why should he mind so furiously when the least little thing reflects upon him, or on anything or anybody connected with him? Eugene patted her hand. That's one of the greatest puzzles of human vanity, dear, and I don't pretend to know the answer. In all my life, the most arrogant people that I've known have been the most sensitive. The people who have done the most in contempt of other people's opinion, and who consider themselves the highest above it, have been the most furious if it went against them. Arrogant and domineering people can't stand the least, lightest, faintest breath of criticism. It just kills them. Papa, do you think George is arrogant and domineering? Oh, he's still only a boy, said Eugene consolingly. There's plenty of fine stuff in him. Can't help but be, because he's Isabel Amberson's son. Lucy stroked his hair, which was still almost as dark as her own. You liked her pretty well once, I guess, Papa. I do still, he said quietly. She's lovely. Lovely. Papa. She paused, then continued. I wonder sometimes— what? What? I wonder just how she happened to marry Mr. Minifer. Oh, Minifer's all right, said Eugene. He's a quiet sort of man, but he's a good man, and a kind man. He always was, and these things count. But in a way, well, I've heard people say there wasn't anything to him at all, except business and saving money. Miss Fanny Minifer herself told me that everything George and his mother have of their own—that is, just to spend as they like—she says it has always come from Major Amberson. "'Thrift, Horatio,' said Eugene lightly. "'Thrift's an inheritance, and a common enough one here. The people who settled the country had to save. So making and saving were taught as virtues. And the people, to the third generation, haven't found out that making and saving are only means to an end. Minifer doesn't believe in money being spent. He believes God made it to be invested and saved. But George isn't saving. He's reckless, and even if he is arrogant and conceited and bad-tempered, he's awfully generous. Oh, he's an Amberson, said her father. The Ambersons aren't saving. They're too much the other way, most of them. I don't think I should have called George bad-tempered," Lucy said thoughtfully. No, I don't think he is. 
"'Only when he's cross about something?' Morgan suggested, with a semblance of sympathetic gravity. "'Yes,' she said brightly, not perceiving that his intention was humorous. "'All the rest of the time he's really very amiable. Of course, he's much more a perfect child the whole time than he realizes. He's certainly behaved awfully to-night.' She jumped up, her indignation returning. "'He did, indeed.' and it won't do to encourage him in it. I think he'll find me pretty cool, for a week or so." Whereupon her father suffered a renewal of his attack of uproarious laughter. End of chapter